13. <clears throat> we'll be taking up the scriptures in the 36th verse. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. The Lord, our God, whether we're in the old or the new book, whether in the Gospels or in the prophecies of old, we find a picture of the weakness, sinfulness of man. Lord, where we find that in others, we know that it is but casting light on our own hearts. And so this morning, Lord, as we take up these verses from John's gospel, that which the Spirit inspired him, Lord, we pray that we would not be thinking of Peter so much, but that we would learn from Peter and reflect on ourselves. But more than that, Lord, that our eyes would look to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You ever been asked the question, which Bible character do you most identify with? Which one do you see yourself most like? Um, I don't know if anybody's done uh, a um, full-blown survey with, you know, uh, accurate results, but my own anecdotal experience uh, through some 60 years is that most often people say Peter. Peter is the Bible character that many Christians identify with. Why is that? Perhaps you yourself have said that. Why is that? Is it because he's so ready to act impulsively? Is it because he has a gift for opening his mouth and inserting his foot, even as we find that we do? Perhaps it's because Peter is a passionate man or a man who tends to be in the middle of whatever is going on, as some of us are. Some or all of these may be reasons that Peter is so relatable. Peter was, after all, of like nature with us, a sinner. Yes, but not just a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. Peter was sought out by God. God pursued him and brought him to himself. And by his grace and mercy and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, created new life in Peter. Whether it's Peter, Andrew, or Thomas, or one of the others, or even an Old Testament character, uh, character, we all find that we are like this disciple. Bold. Bold and obedient one moment. And fearful and afraid the next. Often sinning in one way or another, sometimes Immediately after a great victory. Do we not know that? I think that we can learn additional lessons from Peter in this text that hopefully will serve us well. I, I believe that we can also see some things about our Savior that will be a great blessing for us all. The Gospels, thinking about the disciples and how like them we are. In the Gospels, we find these encounters of the passage where Jesus marvels at their little faith. Remember, these are the men who walked with Jesus. They were there for nearly all, if not all, of the miracles he did. They saw and heard his powerful preaching. It was clear to them that he was no ordinary man. Even the people said, 
You know, he preaches as one with authority. People were noticing, and yet these men, day by day, they traveled with him. They were his companions. And yet, we find Jesus, when he looks upon them, here's just some examples. He says, have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me? When in that storm-tossed boat, he says, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? When Peter was sinking in the waters, having just walked on them, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? When they missed the lesson about the leaven of the Pharisees, he had much to say, Oh, you a little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Followed by, do you not understand? And how is it that you do not understand? Followed by, do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is, is, is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? This is to the disciples. The little band that traveled with him. And when Jesus described how he would be betrayed and crucified, the scripture records that they did not understand his saying. And they were afraid to ask him. Afraid, fearful, weak, doubting, not understanding. We can relate to these men. And how often we find this is true of us. We could go on and on, but we'll stomp with these examples. The wonder is, not so the meek, much the weakness and unbelief of man, but the mar- we marvel at Jesus' patience, his long-suffering, his love, and his understanding of the spiritual condition of man. We also saw at the tomb of Lazarus how considering sin, death, and, and how it affected all men, the great deep groaning within him, as the perfect God-man. What stands out here is Jesus' engagement with Peter that should give us all a great peace and a readiness to approach the good Savior. So we look at Peter and we learn from him. This lesson should give us all a readiness to come to the good shepherd with all our doubts, all our wanderings, and all our sin. We're going to use four main heads this morning. Jesus' departure, Peter's boasting, and Jesus' surprising prophecy. And then we'll close with an application looking at comparing and contrasting Judas and Peter. We begin with Jesus' departure. When we pick up in verse 63, we're returning to announcement that Jesus made in verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. But as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. He says, I've told them that. Now I'm telling you, my followers, this. <clears throat> because of Jesus' departure that was coming, he has then given the church a commandment that we are to love one another as he has loved us. And by keeping this commandment, the world will know that we belong to Jesus, that we are his disciples, and that the glory of God will be displayed in the world, in the church, as the power of God by his Spirit is at work in us. After Jesus finished giving this new commandment, Peter's got a question. Right? There's Peter. He's got a question. He's thinking about what he's just heard. He's not got a question about the loving one another part, but about Jesus going away. That where he's going, his disciples can't come. It's understandable that Peter would ask the question for three years Peter and his companions have gone everywhere with Jesus. Jesus has called them out for their various vocations, where they were at in life, and he's called them to follow him. Uh, he's promised to make them fishers of men. They've been with him. They've been instructed. They've seen all these things. And 
Jesus then says, I'm going someplace, but not this time. Not this time. You're not coming with me this time. Being left behind by their master would no doubt have been most distressing. And Peter, not speaking for himself alone, but speaking for the group, as often he does, asks the question, how can this be? How can they not follow him this time? There was an earlier occasion when, I guess that we remember was back in chapter 6, where after Jesus' hard teaching, the bread of life discourse, we'll say, or the sermon on the bread of life, that the, the crowd, those who had been following him, in some sense they were disciples, not the same as these twelve, but this crowd of hundreds, perhaps even thousands, that have been following after Jesus, marveling at his wonders and his teaching, and then hearing this teaching, we're told that many of them ceased from following him. And Jesus then asked the twelve if they were also going to leave. And then Peter... Speaking up for the group, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. So they, they've come to understand something. Peter says, Lord, well, there's no one else like you. There's, there's no other place we can go, no one else we can turn to. But now Jesus is saying, I'm going away. Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is going to the cross to die for his people, to save them from the wrath that is to come. And the 11 men that remained in that upper room with him, they cannot follow Jesus into his death for sinners. For they were sinners. The death that he was going to die was not only to redeem uh, those whom God had appointed for salvation, it included these men that were in that upper room. It was his death alone to die. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he came into the world to save his people. This is why the Father sent him into the world. Jesus, then, as he told the religious leaders, he said, I've come from God. I've come from heaven. I've come from my father. He's been more and more explicit. And he says, I'm going back. And, of course, they were incensed against this. But it was true. He had come from the father to save mankind, to save those made in his image. But he was going to the father. Jesus must go to the father. For as the God man, because of his obedience, even death on the cross, he was to receive an inheritance, as Psalm 2 says, and we sing so regularly. As the God-man, as man, he, in humanity, was to sit the right hand of the Father and to rule over the nations. He had done so as the Son of God, but he was going to do so as the Son of Man. He was going to do so as the God-man. So Jesus must go to the Father. And Jesus told him, he said, I must go to the Father so that I can send the Comforter. If he did not return to the Father, he could not send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come into them in great measures. Not that the Holy Spirit had not been in work. All those who were there that had faith, it was because of the working of the Holy Spirit. But as we see at Pentecost, Jesus then sent the Spirit in great measure into his people. Jesus said, if I do not go, he, that is the Spirit, cannot come. Jesus also explains to Peter that he will follow Jesus later. Notice in the text here, Jesus answered, And where I am going, verse 36, you cannot follow me now. It's similar to what he said in verse 33, but in the ads, but you shall follow me afterwards. Now, you cannot see it here in the English, but he is talking about to them, y'all cannot go with me. But then he says to Peter, singular, you shall follow me afterwards. 
And we find the real understanding and explanation of that when we come to the end of John's Gospel, where Peter is told that he will be led away to where he does not want to go. And we know from these scripture things, but also that Peter will eventually follow Jesus into heaven at the time of his death, when he will sleep in Jesus and be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We know that Peter would follow Jesus particularly because he would be persecuted unto death for being a Christ follower. He was going to be crucified. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here, but you shall follow me afterwards. Jesus is speaking of how Peter will die. But you see, Peter's death was one of martyrdom, uh, being put to death at the hands of wicked men just because of a hatred of Christ. But uh, Peter's death did not atone for sin. Peter's death did not atone for his own sin. There's only one who can atone for sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, how great a work God had begun in Peter's life. Peter's a mess right now, isn't he? But as we follow on into the book of Acts, we see the work of transformation, grace, and God. How, indeed, is the great work that God accomplished in Peter. He was the one who preached at Pentecost. He was the one who the Spirit filled and enabled him to proclaim with clarity the gospel after the cross to begin a pattern of the preaching of God's word to the nations that the nations would know of Christ. Peter's the one who, through whom the power of God went forth to raise up the man who was lame at the temple. Yes, the very one that we're being told about here was that very night going to deny that he knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times he would deny that he knew Christ. But as we shall see in due time, Jesus would restore Peter. And as I've said already, raise him up to be that mighty preacher of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Indeed, as Jesus said, you shall follow me afterward. What did Peter make of this? What was he to make of Jesus' statement to him? Well, we see Peter trying to understand it. Verse 37, as we come to Peter's boasting, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? In some sense, that's a very reasonable question. Peter's been able to follow Jesus for three years, wherever he's gone. Peter was one who followed the Lord up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the Lord arrayed in glory and majesty and splendor. Just had that in my Bible reading this morning. And and the the majesty, the brilliance even of Jesus' clothing um, in uh, Matthew's Gospel is described as whiter than any bleach on earth could have got it. It was dazzling raiment. Peter followed him up. Even to that glorious moment, Peter has seen so much. The healing of lepers. Casting out of demons. Peter's been there for it all, but Jesus says, no, you cannot follow me. Peter, Peter's, he's baffled. Lord, why can I not follow you now? And he says, I will lay down my life for your sake. When we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get a fuller picture. picture. It's, it's quite remarkable how the other gospel writers, they all treat this event. And we learn that Peter maintained that he, unlike the others, would not become ensnared in whatever was to come, that he would be braver than his companions. 
And that Peter, secondly, also maintained that he would not, not deny Jesus no matter what. He's very adamant as we look at the various accounts. Even so far as to say, even if I have to die, I will not deny you, Jesus. The third, you see it right here, Peter asserted that he was ready to go to the very limit for Jesus' sake. My life is yours, he says. I'll lay down my life for you, Master. You see how Peter posted, and Peter boasted of what he would not do, I will not deny, and what he was ready to do, I will lay down my life. You see, Peter, what shall we say about him? He's full of himself. Peter's full of himself. Isn't that what we've been seeing over and over through the Gospels? If you look at the accounts of Peter, why we can identify with him. Peter's often full of himself. He's full of vainglory and boasting and pride. Often well-meaning, but nonetheless very much dependent upon himself. Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 33. Much more recorded here. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I go, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus answered him, Surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. What a remarkable event. Peter is so sure himself. You relate, don't you? At the times we're just so sure of ourselves. Even after Jesus has plainly told Peter what he was going to do, Peter continues to boast in himself. It doesn't give him pause to think, Jesus is telling me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deny him. Well, we might say he doubled down, doubles down. You know the proverb, pride goes before a fall. Well, Peter is the very picture of that proverb. Matthew records a little further on in verse 56. He reports on himself and his companions that when they arrested Jesus, he says, then all the disciples forsook him and fled. I was thinking of Psalm 34. It's a psalm we use regularly in worship, and it's good that we should do so. There David writes about what happened. He had relied on himself when he fled to a pagan king because Saul was pursuing him. David was walking by sight and not by faith. He was in trouble, and so he sought to deliver himself, even though God has promised him, you're the king of Israel, you will sit on the throne God's made great promise, and yet David, he flees away. What does he do? He acts the part of a drooling fool, literally, a drooling fool. But when he had come to his senses and repented, listen to what the song singer of Israel says, Psalm 34, 2. My soul shall make its boast, not itself. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I can imagine Peter being a man equated with the Psalms on the other side of this event that's going to take place that night that Peter may well have taken up David's words once he was broken and restored and magnify the Lord 
He no doubt would have said a hearty amen when he read Paul's words to the letter of the Galatians written years later. If Peter was still alive, Paul wrote there, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Think about Peter after this event, after it's done. Peter reading it, yes and amen. Indeed, we too, yes and amen. But Peter denied that he would deny Jesus. You get that? Peter denied that he would deny the Lord. He was so sure of himself. Peter had yet to learn a lesson. You don't boast in self. You boast in Christ. My friends, that is a lesson for us all. We don't boast in ourselves. If we hear boasting come out of our mouth, expect to fall soon to come. Indeed, put your hand over your mouth. Stop it from continuing. Say, oh God, forgive me for boasting myself. God, have mercy on me but that I should boast in Christ alone. But Peter boasted even more. What can we say to this as we consider it? Well, we should take heed lest we fall. Some of you saints are old enough that you totally relate to this. You can think of your own occasion of boasting. I can remember my brother when he was headed off to college before he went. He said, I'll never join a fraternity. He did. He was being hazed or whatever they do and locked up in a bathroom somewhere. And he was going, what in the world am I doing? And he figured a way to climb out the window and he went away and he was done with fraternities. But you can imagine, we've all had those experiences. We said, I'll never, you know, whatever follows. And then there we are. It's like Peter. We must be careful what we will claim for ourselves. What can we honestly claim for ourselves? I'm a poor, weak, needy sinner. And I have no hope save in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a proper claim for ourselves. This past week I had a conversation with one of you in the congregation about the dangers of using the words never and always carelessly. That's something my, my children were sitting here. Their heads would all be nodding because we covered this territory frequently. Always and never are not words to be tossed about carelessly. Those two words are absolute. Never means never. Ever. And always is always in every occasion. And yet so often, I would never do whatever. Or I'll always, as much as I would like to say to my wife, I will always love you. I know I'm a poor, weak, needy sinner. We're not God. And we cannot do as God does. We can only do what God decrees for us. You and I could only live obediently and faithfully by grace, the grace of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the powerful indwelling and acting work of the Holy Spirit. James warns us in the fourth chapter of his letters, Come now, you say, we'll go to such and such city and we'll conduct business and we're going to make a profit there. James is rebuking them. He says, no, what you rather should say, if God wills, we'll go to such and such city and make a profit there. It is by grace alone that we are saved. and It is by grace alone that we live for the glory of God. It's not because of anything in us. 
We have nothing to boast about, not in our salvation, not in our sanctification, not ultimately in our glorification. And here's the hard reality. We won't fully understand that until we behold Jesus with fully glorified bodies and souls that will realize just how great he is, how unworthy we are for all of eternity. We will marvel in his presence that we're there. Some of you have heard the story about somebody challenging George Whitfield about John Wesley. Yeah, they had a different theology. And this individual thought, well, Wesley, he's all done. And he wants Whitfield to say that. He says, so, George, uh, what do you think? You see John Wesley? You think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And George Whitfield is reporting on, no, I don't know. And the other guy is thinking, yeah, that's what I thought. But George Whitfield didn't stop there. He said, no. He said, I don't think I'll see him because he'll be much closer to the throne than I am. See, a sense of humility that should govern us all. It is by the grace of God that we are saved. It is by the grace of God that we run the race set before us, running by the rules that we finish the course, so that indeed God alone is glorified. We can only bring God glory to God when we die to self. When we die to ourself, that is the beginning of how then we love one another as Christ has loved us. The very thing. Here's Peter. Have he's just heard that you're to love one another as I have loved you, and then and Peter's boasting in himself. I can imagine for all of the apostles that after Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection, that the lessons started clicking. You know, the Holy Spirit filling them, and those moments where the lights went on, the aha moments in understanding, and I, Think of Peter down the road back to his position and the, the way that it played out. Jesus talking about how the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. It is God who glor- is glorified in Him. God will also glorify Him in Himself. And He will glorify Himself immediately. Talking about the cross. The way of suffering. And then Jesus says to them, my little children, I will only be with you a while longer. And therefore, you might say, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I love you. And then Paul is, uh, Peter is going... I'll never reflecting back on that, I could just imagine Peter was hanging his head. We, we, we don't have to wonder. Because when Jesus sees him at the lakeside, Peter is he's downcast. Jesus asks him, Do you love me, Peter? We'll come to this at the end of the gospel. That's the end of it. Oh, that we would learn from these things. That we would learn to walk in the light of God's grace. That we should not boast in ourselves. That we should be careful to always trust in the Lord. Right? Always trust in the Lord. Knowing that it can only be so by His grace. Well, we find then Jesus' surprising prophecy. As certain as Peter was, it was certain that he was wrong. You get that? As certain as Peter was. He's certain. He doubles down, right? No way. And yet it was certain that he was wrong. Peter would do exactly opposite of what he so strongly declared he was ready and willing to do. Jesus pressed Peter with a question that without a doubt alarmed Peter. Notice in verse 38, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? That's what Peter's just said, right? And now his Lord is saying... Will you? What must have gone on in Peter's 
mind how there must have been doubts and alarm as Jesus pressed him with that. But then Jesus immediately follows with a probing question, and this probe with this probing question with a prophetic statement. And notice how certain Peter was, right? Doubling down. I will not. I will not. I will most assuredly lay down my life. And what does Jesus said to him? Uh, most assuredly. If you had the King James, it would say, verily, verily. Or amen, amen. New King James translates it most assuredly. We've seen John record a number of Jesus' statements that were preceded by this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me. Three times. Now we're all so well, well familiar with this account, but let us not miss what's going on here. Peter would not be laying down his life for Jesus. That's what he said he would do, but he won't be doing it. Very soon Peter will deny that he even knows him. And those denials will be spread out over a period of time on that night. They weren't in rapid succession. It wasn't over the course of days, though. It's all that night, even as Jesus says, before the cock crows, which is the roosters. If you've got any near you, they started up, what, at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning? So it's, it's going to be very soon. But Jesus makes it clear, no, Peter, you won't be laying down your life for me. No, I'm, I'm going to be laying my life down for you, even for this sinful boasting that you have done right now. Peter, when he denies the first time, think about it, he would have a time to recall this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me. But Peter's, he's in the grip of it all. We, we can relate, right? He's in the grip of that sin. He denies him. He does, there's no alarm. Not that changes his action. A little while later, he denies him again. Is Peter keeping count that night? Then he denies him the third time. That's what's going to take place. All of this before the dawn's early light comes, the time when the roosters start their crowing, there would be a specific rooster that would crow right after Peter's third denial. Remember, God governs all his creatures and all their actions. There was a rooster that night near at hand, no doubt in the chief priest's household somewhere on his grounds within earshot, as soon as Peter denies the third time, and that rooster crowed. And we know from another gospel that actually maybe in John's that Jesus looked at, G at Peter. That third denial. Jesus warned Peter of his weakness. But get this, the warning of his weakness was not sufficient enough for Peter to overcome the weakness. We can relate to that, don't we? We know. We know we're weak. We're warned about it. We know we shouldn't go to certain places, look at certain things. And we do. Being warned will not overcome the weakness. It's only in Christ that we're overcoming. And indeed, that's what Luke records for us at this occasion. At this very occasion, Peter is told by Jesus, Simon, Simon, that's his other name. Indeed, Satan has asked for you. So take our breath away. Satan has asked for you. Should have took Peter's breath away. That he may sift you as wheat. That's quite a process. You know what they do with the wheat? They bring in the sheaves. They come to the threshing floor to hard rock. They lay it down. And then they take big rods and they beat the wheat. 
And then with either a fan or because it's on a high place and there's a breeze, they toss it up. The chaff is blown away. Uh, wheat berries that you're after, they don't have any feelings. You just think about that process for the wheat. The sifted. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But that a marvelous word. I heard uh, R.C. Sproul this past week, and, and he comes to that but. He says, I love the buts of the gospel. Amen. Here's one. But I have prayed for you. And the Lord prays for us. Jesus continues, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And that when you have returned to me, you love that. Not if you return to me, but when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And of course, this ties in to that last conversation that Jesus has with Peter. Well, let us notice some things that are true for us. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus knew there in the, in the spiritual realm, Peter's been asked for. Not by some of the demons, not by the religious leaders. They're after Jesus. But even as Satan is after Jesus, wants him crucified, he's entered Judas to go that night and to betray him. Satan's on a roll. And he wants Peter. It's a sober reality. Peter's the leader of the band. Our friends, you know who Satan wants more probably than any of you? Your pastor. Take down the shepherd. Know how the sheep suffer. We, we know the occasions. We've heard of prominent ministers. But Jesus prayed for Peter. This is critical to see. When we sin, we so often want to run and hide. We often go off and we get into more sin. But Jesus prays for us. We have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession with the Father for us. And what should that teach us? We should pray. For ourselves and one another. For your pastor and your elders and your deacons. For the fathers. If the principle is true in the household as well. If you take out the father, the family suffers greatly. Look at our country. Look at our land. As forces of evil have come to destroy the family that go after the fathers. Pray for the fathers. Even you little children. Some of you only barely old enough to talk. Pray for your father. Pray that the Lord would bless and keep him. Even you little children. Satan desires to sift him. Why do we persevere? It's one of the doctrines, right? The tulip, what's the last one? The P, perseverance of the saints. Why do we persevere? Not because we're great. It's because Jesus has prayed for us. We're secured in him, washed in his blood. But also we see Jesus was merciful to Peter. Knowing that he what he would soon do, and yet Jesus did not send him out into the dark night like Judas. He doesn't say, Peter, you're going to betray me. Therefore, go. And what you're going to do, go and do quickly. No, he was merciful with Peter. William Hendrickson rightly points out in this situation that we see Jesus as the great prophet. What Jesus says here is a prophecy. He prophesies to Peter. It's a very specific prophecy. Jesus is the great prophet. And he knew what Peter could not know. And he warned him about it. We also see Jesus as the great sufferer. He saw what was to come, all of it, including Peter, one of his closest companions, one of his most trusted confidants and friends. There's the cross, the grave, but also here's the dear of his friends. He's going to deny him. He's going to deny him not once, not twice, but three times. 
was suffering that our Savior endured. He hasn't even come to the cross. But also we see Jesus as a great Savior. So a great prophet, a great sufferer, and a great Savior. The rooster crowing would be how shallow, would show how shallow Peter's boasting was. In a matter of a few hours, it would be done. Peter will have publicly, repeatedly disowned Christ. His master and his friend. The rooster crowing would also be the means of God's grace appointed that Peter would begin repentance. The cock's crow would be like the ringing of the bell of Peter's conscience. What he's just done. And indeed, he was a broken man. Broken pride. Broken away from self-reliance. Jesus looked at Peter in that moment. thought about that as I was preparing this sermon. What does that look like? What kind of look do we give to someone who betrays us, denies us? It would be the glaring stare of indignation or angry or maybe even seeking to communicate I'm going to get you for that. I will make you pay. My friends, that's not how Jesus looked at Peter. He looked at him only as he could look at him. It would have been the look that only a Savior could have given. It was a look that riveted Peter to his Savior so that he did not go off in despair and go off and do as Judas did. My friends, we are only kept by the grace of God. Peter didn't go out and hang himself because of the grace and mercy of Christ who looked at him with compassion and a look that communicated to Peter, I still love you. I'm still your master and your redeemer. And yes, I'm going to be crucified for you, Peter. Don't ever lose sight of that because it's true for every one of us who are in Christ. Peter saw what we too must see by faith. We're not there where Jesus is near hand, can look at his literal eye, but he beholds us from the right hand of the Father. He beholds us. Jesus looks upon us as wayward sheep, and his look is always filled with love, mercy, and understanding. He knows what our nature is like. He knows what it's like to live here on the earth under the effects of the curse for sin. He walked among sinful men. He knows what it is to live in a frail human body affected because of Adam's sin. My friends, when we have failed, look to the Savior. For in His look there's healing. Restoration. It often takes time to recover, yea, to grow stronger in Christ, but that's all found in Jesus And he communicates all that he is and all that he has done for us. And he has the ability to do that with a look. And so, my friends, when you failed, look to Christ by faith. And know that your Savior is looking at you with compassion and understanding and forgiveness and healing. So, my friends, lift up your heads. Ye saints of God, lift up your heads and look to Christ. Look for your Savior comes with healing in his wings. Are you distressed? Are you broken? Are you discouraged? Are you overwhelmed? Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Jesus says, come. Come and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a glorious promise. What a wonderful invitation. 
some application. We also walk through life like Peter in a halter, stumbling way. We begin with all those statements of Jesus, and there's many, many, many more in the Gospels. Are you of so little faith? Have I been with you so long and you're so little, little understanding? Some of you have walked with the Lord for decades, and you can relate. We walk through life halting, stumbling, falling. You can imagine the Apostle Peter saying pretty much the same as Paul did in Romans 7. For what I am, what am I doing? I do not understand. And what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, that I do. Peter did not plan to deny that he knew his master. And yet, when in self-confidence, he fled from him. In the house of the high priest, after the denial, Peter sank into a storm of fear of man in that place. In the house of the high priest, he, in fear of man, denied Jesus. Even a young maiden, the language, she's a young girl, you know, maybe like a 12, 13 year old, just a young girl. You're one of his. And Peter is so wrapped in fear, he denies even curses. So I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Every true Christian has found him or herself in that same position. There are times when we're put on the spot and we go with the crowd. Fear of man compels us and we walk after the man of the world. We, we walk and we sin, denying that we know the Lord. We deny the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of God to, to stiffen our spine, as it were, and to, to live and to, to give glory to God and to bring a testimony to His name. And we, and we go along. And we may not say to our friends, I deny that I know Jesus, but our actions say that we do. It grieves my heart to know how often I've done that myself. But we have a great Savior. Jesus does not turn back. He does not walk away from you. This is the good news of the Gospel. No, a thousand times no. He promised, and here it is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. There's no qualifications to that. It's an absolute, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That the Lord would lift us up and comfort us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For this reason, He came into the world. Jesus is there to restore us. How? How can this be? Why can Jesus do this? Well, because of what took place. That His hour had come. He's going to the cross. The reason He came into the world, He went to the cross. He took all our sins upon Him. And He paid the penalty for them all. He broke the power of sin for us all who belong to Him. We are delivered. The wrath of God that we deserve has been spent so that the love of God displayed in His Son would, bestowed, would be bestowed upon us, upon Peter, for you, and upon a great multitude down through the ages. So, my friends, don't wallow in your sin. Stop it. Run to Christ. Run to the one who is faithful. He will save you. He saved us. He continues to save us. And he will ultimately save us, bringing home to the Father. I told you we'd close with an application looking at Judas and Peter. This will be brief. We've kind of touched on it as we've gone through. But both Peter and Judas fell because they were confused. Right? What were they confused about? They were confused about who Jesus was. 
and what he had come to do. Judas was confused, um, thinking that Jesus was the kind of Messiah that he wanted, a, a mighty warrior who would break off the yoke of Rome and drive them out of Israel, drive out the pagans from the land, and reestablish the throne of David. And, and what is Judas looking for? What's the position on his right hand or his left hand? Judas wanted to be a part of this great kingdom. He wanted to be part of a movement that would drive out the Romans. Israel has been fighting against various forces ruling over them for some 400 years. And Judas wants to be right there on the front lines. Perhaps he hopes, knowing what we know about him, it's not a stretch. Perhaps he hopes to be put in charge of the treasury so he could get his hand into more money than he'd ever seen. But when it became clear that Jesus had no intention of a military coup, Judas cast Christ away and sold him out for what he could get. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Peter was confused about how Jesus was going to accomplish the bringing into the kingdom of God, a kingdom that Jesus had preached was near at hand, and thus repentance was needed. That was John's message as the forerunner, and Christ continued that message. Peter also seems to think, as Judas, that warfare will be required. Remember, he carried a sword into the garden, and he pulled it out and used it. He thinks by force of arms, Jesus is going to win whatever victory it is to bring in the kingdom of God. Blood somehow must be spilled. Peter was ready to spill his own blood. That's what he said, for Christ's sake. If not his blood, well, the servant of the Pharisees will take his head. Peter wasn't in it for money. He seems to have a loyalty and also seeking some fame or praise. Even today, people followed Jesus for wrong reasons. There are those who follow Jesus for the desire for fame, for position, for power, for prestige. We, we've seen in our own day. There's, there's podcasts recounting their ministries. There's still a confusion over who Jesus is and why He came. And so... They reject the purpose for Christ coming into the world to save sinners. There's a confusion over Christ that Jesus came to meet man's greatest need. Adam sinned, and we all sinned and fell with him in his first transgression. Adam plunged all of mankind into a state of sin and misery, and Adam, we all died. And thus we're born dead in sin. We don't need a warrior, a military warrior to deliver us. We need a Savior who's able to undo that Gordian knot of sin, death, judgment, a holy God who must be satisfied and, and yet punishment must be dispensed in the only way apart from a Savior is that we die in our own place for our own sins. But God has provided the Lamb. He's provided His Son who died the death we deserve. He stood in our place as Bunyan says in his Pilgrim's Progress, Jesus stood in our room. He took what we deserved. Even today, there are problems that are in the headlines. But they're not real problems. You hear the headlines, you see the clickbait. These are not the problems, my friend. The problem is sin. And Jesus is the answer. And he has proclaimed it in his gospel, and so we are called to. We don't need the right president or a different Congress or Supreme Court. We need a Savior. My friends, do not lose sight of that. We need a Savior. We need someone who can address our hearts because our heart's the problem. And so we need to get to the heart of the problem. And that's what Christ does in His Gospel. 
We need Jesus. We need His blood, His righteousness. We're often just like Peter and Judas. But if we would be saved, then we need to flee to Jesus like Peter did and not run from Him like Judas did. We're often weak and often a little faith, but Jesus stands ready to pull us back up when we are sinking. He will not stuff out the smoldering wick or break off the bruised reed. My sisters and brothers, you have come to Jesus for salvation. Keep coming to Him for your sanctification. Keep coming to Him. Recognize that as you did when you first believed, help, Lord, save me. I I can't save myself, but live a life day by day. Help, Lord, that I would live for You. I can't do any of it apart from You. We'll see that promise of Christ in the two chapters. If you abide in Him, my words abide in you. Then you will bear much fruit. Jesus always has His eye upon us. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. A sparrow cannot fall apart from the Lord's knowledge. And how much more worth are you than a sparrow? His eye is always upon you. Look to Him with the eye of faith. And remember, Jesus will never leave nor forsake you. Never. We are afflicted with the weakness of Peter. But when we are weak, Christ is strong. Amen? Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we... We thank you and praise you for the integrity and the honesty, the forthrightness of Scripture that uh, though Peter set forth in due time to be an instrument in your hand to accomplish great things, you're, you're honest about who he was, the type of man he was before you worked on him fully. And even a, a work that continued to be done. Paul had to rebuke him to his face. Lord, we're grateful that your Scriptures come with such integrity telling us about such men, for, Lord, we're like them. We need these examples, warts and all, so that we would see the fullness and the beauty and the glory of what Christ has done. That we would have a confidence that in our weakness, Christ is able to help us. He can be our strength, even as he was for these men and women of old. Lord, we bless you and praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who has died in our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.